This lecture is brought to you by Knox Theological Seminary on iTunes U. Knox is a seminary in the tradition of the Reformation that exists to educate men and women to declare and demonstrate the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our prayer is that this teaching will be beneficial in your Christian life and ministry. You were asking about David, Bathsheba, and the question of, of the, the little boy who was born um, who, to Bathsheba, who then died. Yes, I mean, and David says, well, I will go to him and he will not come back to me. I mean, we don't, see, they didn't have a very clear idea about heaven or anything like that, so we don't really know, you know, what happened. Um, the baby died before being circumcised. That we do know because he was circumcised on the eighth day and he died after seven days, so he couldn't have been circumcised. And it says in Hebrews, you see Hebrews chapter 11, verse 39, when Hebrews 11 gives that long list of Old Testament characters, and then at the end it says, but all these, you see, were held back. They didn't go into, in, 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 into the promised inheritance because they waited for us. So whatever that means, uh, you know. I think it, you, to speculate on what happens to those people in the Old Testament is very difficult. Um, you know, whether, I mean, I don't doubt that they're in heaven now. Uh, you know, whether there was, no, there was no awareness of that in the Old Testament. So I think we just have to be agnostic about it. We don't know. What I say to parents who, or anybody, you know, who lost a child like that, I say, well, you know, the Lord is given, the Lord is taken away. This child is in the hand of God. This child was given to you by God. This child has been taken by God, and we must trust in God, you know, that he knows what he's doing. I said, I don't know what he's doing. You don't know what he's doing, but he knows what he's doing. I don't say this child has gone to heaven. I mean, I hope and pray that he has, but I, haven't, I, I have no authority to say that. You know, I mean, I don't know that this is true. And, and so I don't, I don't say something, you know, that, that would give maybe the wrong impression. But I do, um, and I think that's right. I think, you know, we can, this is where faith comes in, trust. I mean, if you believe, you know, you have to say, well, um, you know, what was the purpose in this? God has got his purpose in this. He must know what he's doing and trust him and leave that with him. Um, you know, and, and I don't have a problem with that because essentially that's what we do with everybody. I mean, I don't know when somebody dies that they've gone to heaven. How do I know? I mean, I hope and pray that they have and they may believe they have and so on, but I mean, um, you know, and, and, and I've no reason to doubt that. Uh, it's, it's not that, but it's not my say-so. <laughs> you know, I haven't got the right to say that somebody has or has not, um, you know, I say, well, we trust and we hope, and he trusts and hope, and so, yes, I believe he's in heaven. You know, that's fine. I'm, I'm happy to accept that and believe that. But if somebody says, oh, well, you're the priest or you're the minister or whatever, you ought to know and, you know, put the seal of approval on it or something like that, I mean, I can't really do that. I can't, you know, um, because I, I'm not the gatekeeper of heaven. Um, you have to be a little bit modest here. Um, you know, I mean, we, we walk by faith. I mean, I, I, I hope and pray when I die that I will go to heaven. But, 
and I believe that I, you know, I believe that, and I trust God for that, uh, and so on. But I mean, it's His. I belong to Him. It's His. It's His call. I can't sort of say to God, you know, you've got to let me in because I want to be there. You can't manipulate. You see, you can, you can trust and you can hope and you can pray and you can believe. But, but. In the end, God is sovereign, and you have to say, well, he knows what he's doing, and he uses us. I mean, I believe these things. I'm not trying to give you the impression that I, do, I'm, I don't believe it. But I don't, I would never say to somebody that my beliefs, my faith, is so absolute that, you know, that I've ta I'm not taking the place of God. I mean, you know, so, you know, this is this is God's life and God. This is God's church and God's rule, and He decides, not me. Uh, you know, and and I pray and I and I I'm obedient and I follow what He says and I believe this is what He will do because this is what He said He will do. Fine, but it's up to Him. And and you you, you we can only point people to Christ. We can't we can't stand in the way either positively or negatively, uh, you know. I mean, I encourage, I, I, and as I say, I do believe and, you know, encourage people to trust. But I'm only helping them get closer to God, not saying, you know, get closer to me and then you don't have to worry about God because he'll do what I say. That's really the, my concern. But I'm only saying this to you, you see, because you're sitting in the classroom. I wouldn't say this to people outside who were in this situation. Uh, I, I mean, I'm not that insensitive. Um, but, uh, but when we're talking about this in theory in a classroom, you have to say, well, you know, there are limits to what we can, uh, what we can do uh, as ministers, as servants. You know, we, can, we, we, can't, we can't control God. All right. Okay, well then I want to finish off the, this afternoon by talking about grace because grace is the key to, uh, to everything really. Grace is one of those words that everybody has heard but almost nobody seems to be able to define. Um, it's, it's not a word that we often use um, uh, in, in, everyday, uh, in everyday speech. Um, you know, it's a, it's a curious word in this respect because we don't feel it's, it's a strange word or a foreign word um, or a word that represents something that we never actually come across, you know, like centurion or something like that. I mean, it's not a, an odd word of this kind. Um, but on the other hand, it's, um, it's sufficiently vague in most people's minds that um, we think we know what it is, but we don't, you know, um, uh, we find it hard to, to pin it down, to say precisely what we mean. And so therefore I want to start off by saying that in theological usage, what grace is, uh, is God's uh, favor towards us. Um, God's willingness to uh, to open himself up to us, to give himself to us, to uh, invite us and, and, and bring us into his life. This is what it amounts to. Um, 
you know, it is, if you like, the manifestation of God's love to us. It is called grace because uh, you cannot earn it. It is, it, is, it is not something that is a reward for achievement. Um, and therefore, whether uh, God shows me his grace or not does not depend on me. Uh, again, uh, you know, to repeat a well-worn phrase, we cannot manipulate this. We cannot control this. It, it, is, it is in God's um, uh, gift, uh, as it were, as God's free gift uh, to us. Now, our understanding of this, of how it works, really uh, goes back to St. Augustine, um, uh, who lived in the fourth century and who is perhaps the greatest theologian uh, of the Western Church, that is to say, the, the, the Latin-speaking Church, or uh, as we would now uh, have it, uh, the Catholic and Protestant churches, uh, not so well known in the Eastern churches, um, uh, Greek Orthodox and so on. But anyway, that's another issue. We won't get into that right now. Um, but Augustine... Uh, is responsible, if you like, for the first serious theological analysis of the subject. And his analysis was so comprehensive and so profound uh, that it became the standard view uh, for at least a thousand years after his death. And uh, some people would say, and they may be right, it's still basically the standard view today. Um, or at least its impact is such that you cannot discuss it today without using the kind of categories and, uh, assumption, and assumptions that we associate with him. If Augustine is to be criticized uh, on the subject, and I should point out that there's a whole industry today of theologians who like to criticize Augustine. Uh, the reason for this being that Augustine was such a great man. I mean, he was a very great thinker um, and said so many things about almost every conceivable subject uh, that um, he's relatively easy to criticize. I mean, the hardest people to criticize are the ones who never say anything because you don't know what they said, so you can't really say anything. Um, whereas someone who writes the amount of material that Augustine has written, of course, is exposing themselves um, you know, to all kinds of, uh, 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 of attack one way or another. Um, but this mustn't be taken too seriously. Uh, great men are always going to be attacked. I mean, that, you, you've got to expect that. Um, but this is a sign of their greatness, and, um, you know, not uh, because they're wrong. I mean, it's because people think it's worthwhile uh, engaging with, with their thought. Um, and, of course, you, to engage with somebody's thought, uh, you're almost bound to be critical of something, because otherwise um, you wouldn't be engaging with it. You'd just be repeating it. You see what I mean? So uh, you need to be aware uh, of, of this dimension, too. However, having said that, I think if a criticism is to be made and it can be substantiated, I would say that um, 
the, the difficulty with Augustine, at least as we see it today, uh, I mean, our way of thinking, is that he tended to objectify grace, to think of it as a thing. Um, now, this may be unfair to him, and I say this with some caution, because it's not, it's not difficult to know sometimes whether this is what Augustine himself thought or whether it was the way he was interpreted later on. He certainly was interpreted like that later on. There's no doubt about that. But whether it's a fair analysis of what he himself thought is much more doubtful. You know, and of course, again, there's another industry uh, out there in the theological world, which is basically recovering the real Augustine. You know, will the real Augustine please stand up? And not the one that, that, you know, has come down through the centuries and been caricatured one way or another by different people uh, with their own interests. However, uh, as I say, from our point of view, looking at it now, uh, we have to take that into consideration because that's the way it's been seen. That's the way it's been used. That's the way it's been read. And if we think like this, you see, Augustine analyzed grace, if you like, into different types. Um, first of all, there was what he called prevenient grace. That is to say, grace which is given uh, before anything else can happen. And this, says Augustine, is given in baptism. Uh, because until you are baptized, you can't begin, uh, you, you have no life in God, uh, so you can't really grow in grace, you can't really uh, develop a, a relationship with God uh, that you don't have. Um, and the only way you can get it is if he gives it to you, you know. And so therefore, uh, it is a work of his grace, it is a gift from him, uh, and the way this is given is given in baptism. You see, baptism opens the door, if you like, to a relationship with God, uh, and, uh, and this is where it starts. Uh, now, um, again, if you think of grace as a thing, you will say, well, is it, some, is it like a medicine or a vaccine or something like this that, uh, that does something? <laughs> Uh, you know, to, to, to you, that changes your, your, takes away your original sin. And of course, this is what people believed, uh, that it cleanses, it cleansed people from original sin. Um, this, of course, is a much more dubious uh, uh, idea, um, because uh, clearly it doesn't make people sinless. Uh, you know, you're still sinning uh, after baptism. And of course, Augustine was aware of that. I mean, he didn't believe uh, that people who were baptized ceased to be sinners or ceased to sin. Uh, he certainly didn't think that. Um, so it's, it becomes a bit difficult, really, to, to know quite what to say about this. But, uh, but he sees this, as, a, as it were, as the, as the beginning, as the first phase, if you like. Then uh, the next kind of grace, or the next level, uh, is what he calls a cooperating kind of grace. That is to say, once the, you have been set free from original sin, once you, you, you have been turned to God in baptism, uh, you can receive a kind of grace um, which uh, allows you to respond to God, um, you know, to, to 
to conform your thinking and, and, and so on to what God wants from you. Uh, and he said, this is what most people um, experience in the course of their life. Uh, that, as we, that growth in grace, what we would today call sanctification, um, is, is essentially this. Uh, you know, you're a developing relationship with God uh, in which he uh, provides you with the strength and the power, uh, the spiritual power, uh, to overcome sin in your life. Well, all right. Um, uh, you know, this is, uh, this is how we, we see it. Um, then um, there are two other kinds of grace, uh, one of which he calls sufficient grace. Sufficient grace is, the grace, is, is enough grace to get you into heaven. Um, the problem with sufficient grace, uh, from the practical point of view, uh, is that only two people have ever had it. Uh, one was Adam, well, I suppose Eve, three people have had it, Adam and Eve, um, had it in the Garden of Eden, but they lost it by their sin. And Jesus Christ, of course, you see, who was sinless. And so he, he had enough grace in himself uh, to, to get to heaven. Well, all right. Um, but this, in a way, shows you the, the, the problem with trying to be too analytical and, and categorizing and so on. Um, I mean, no doubt what we say in this way is perfectly true, but whether it deserves to be called a special kind of grace or not, uh, I, you know, I don't know. I mean, maybe this is kind of over-analysis, but never mind. Um, uh, we will... Uh, we will deal with this in due course. And the last kind of grace, the fourth kind, is efficient grace, uh, which is given to the elect, given to those who have been chosen for salvation. And this is the grace, it kind of bump starts the, them and gets them into heaven. You know, uh, this is what gets you over the threshold into heaven. As I say, it's a slightly schematic uh, analysis. It doesn't necessarily work very well, uh, but um, if you break it, if you push it too far, uh, but at least it helps us understand that God works in us in different ways. I think it, perhaps if we think of it like that, we're actually coming closest to what Augustine believed, uh, you know, uh, uh, and what he was trying to express, that, that God does not work in the same way all the time in everybody. Uh, that there are different aspects of grace. I mean, I think today most people would want to say there's really only grace. I mean, you know, because there's one God, there's one grace. But, but God's relationship to individuals um, is different. Uh, you know, it, it has different aspects and so on. And, and this is what the, the division into different kinds of grace um, was, a, was meant to convey. Uh, originally, whether this is what you think about it or not. Now, the sufficient grace, uh, I, I mentioned this in passing, uh, is reserved to Christ in practice. As I said, it was given to Adam and Eve, but this doesn't really count because they lost it um, uh, by the fall. But of course, Jesus Christ did not lose it. Uh, and the difference between the grace of Christ uh, and 
uh, that of Adam is that while Adam and Eve had enough grace to get them into heaven, if they'd kept it, they didn't really have any more than that. Jesus, on the other hand, not only had enough grace to get himself into heaven, but because of his death and resurrection, he had more than enough Uh, that uh, he had what is known as a superabundance of grace or merit, if you want to uh, call it that, uh, and therefore had plenty left over to share with us, you see, to give to us. And indeed, this was the purpose of his, uh, of his life, death, and resurrection. I mean, he didn't need to come into the world. He didn't need to live and die uh, and rise again from the dead in order to save himself because he was sinless to begin with. So that everything that he did really went to count uh, towards our salvation. You see, his work was to do with us and was on our behalf, uh, not for himself. All right, as I say, because he didn't need this. Therefore, of course, being united with Christ, participating in Christ, being part of the body of Christ, means sharing in his grace. It means that his death on the cross is my death on the cross. His uh, victory over sin is my victory over sin. Not, and I hasten to add, because I have done anything to deserve this. Augustine would never uh, say anything like that. He would be horrified by any such suggestion. But because I have been joined with Christ, I have submitted to Christ, I have been engrafted into Christ, if you want to use Paul's language in Romans. Um, you know, I belong to Christ, and therefore, his achievement is extended to me. His grace is extended to me. And the question then becomes, how do I get it? Because it's one thing to say that I'm entitled to it. You know that Christ has died for me and therefore uh, you know, I am entitled to a share in his grace and so on. That's fine. We accept that. But how do I actually get hold of it? Now, a comparison that we might make, I mean, a, a, an image you might give today. And sometimes you hear about this kind of thing. You know, somebody who is very poor, somebody who may be homeless, for example, um, has nothing. And then a rich relative dies and this homeless person discovers that he is the inheritor. And suddenly there's all this money lying around somewhere in the bank which is his. So he who is a homeless person in the street is actually very rich 
because of this money laid up in the bank for him. But it doesn't really affect him very much because he doesn't know about it. You know, I mean, if he's lying under, he's sleeping under a bridge or something like this, I mean, and nobody come, tells him that, you know, he's, this money is there waiting for him to claim. Well, it's not really doing him any good. Now, Augustine thinks of the elect person, the, you know, the, the person God has chosen for salvation, rather like this. You and me, in other words. Uh, you know, we are like poor homeless people, pilgrims and strangers on earth, for whom the, 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 the Son of God has died, uh, for whom the Son of God has opened the gates of heaven. But how are we going to benefit from this if we don't know, A, know about it, and B, if we don't go to claim our inheritance? You see, it's not enough just to know that it's there. Uh, you also have to claim it. And how are you going to claim it? What do you have to do in order to claim it? And this is where life gets interesting because it is on the basis of what Augustine said. Now, Augustine didn't develop things in quite this, uh, quite this far, but this is the basis of it, that a concept grows up known as the means of grace. And the means of grace are the ways in which the grace of God is conveyed to the believer, how we get access to what Christ has done for us. These courses provide a glimpse into our academic programs. Knox students can take one week or semester length courses in person at our South Florida campus or choose to complete a degree entirely online. By bringing together academic excellence, a vibrant community of learning, and flexible scheduling, Knox offers today's students timeless truth through modern convenience. For more information about earning credit toward a master's degree, please visit our website at knoxseminary.edu.